Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. Thank you again, and now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is researcher and author Fred Anderson, who joined me to talk about his new book, Northern Lights, High Strangeness in Sweden. This is the first book written in English entirely devoted to the subject of high strangeness, UFOs and other mysteries in that country. Sweden has a long history of weirdness, unexplained observations and eerie encounters, often connected to the countryside, desolate roads and empty fields. From gnomes, elves and trolls of the past to UFOs and aliens in modern times. The book takes an in-depth look at a wide range of peculiar incidents recorded throughout Sweden's history, spanning from 1920 to 2013, and delves into a myriad of extraordinary encounters. The primary emphasis of the narrative remains on the gripping subjects of UFOs and extraterrestrial beings, examining their profound impact on both the personal experiences of witnesses and the rich tapestry of Swedish culture. In the interview, I begin by talking with Fred about his interest in the paranormal and how the idea for the book came about. From there, we explore some of the strange incidents it covers and discuss Fred's own insights into the high strangeness of his homeland. I'm a huge fan of Fred and his work, and it was great to interview him for the podcast. Enjoy! Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rick. I'm I'm so happy to be here. You know, it's uh, it's been a busy, busy weekend, and I'm finally just sitting down and you know sitting down and talk with you. You know, it's it's something I've been looking forward to. Excellent. Before we get to talking about your book, um, just talk a little bit about yourself, um, your background, and your interest in the paranormal. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, my my background in high strangeness and the par- paranormal is a long and winding road, actually. But you can say it it started. Oh, I don't know how many years it was. Let's say, I mean, I've been interested in in the subject for since I was a child, of course. But uh, maybe it was like two thousand and fourteen. I, I I got a job as a segment producer for a paranormal show, and I had the opportunity to interview you know hundreds of people uh you know for my for my day job basically uh interviewed them in front of the camera and i was to be honest i i've always been on the you know little skeptical side but after talking with so many people i started to let's say know people better in general and discovered that there's so many other stories and experiences out there. So it kind of catapulted me into this, uh, this uh, sphere of this subject even, even more. Um, and, and I mean, since then I've been, you know, uh, you know, researching mainly uh, UFOs and humanoids and, you know, the really weird stuff, especially here in Sweden. Uh, I've also been, uh, you know, researcher and story producer for uh, another par- paranormal show, Spökjakt, which is a huge, huge streaming success here in Scandinavia. And we've been going on since 2019, actually. Um, so that's kind of my, 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 the, the, the ground I'm standing on. Um, but my, 
my main interests. I mean, in, in TV, I mostly work with ghosts, actually. Uh, but my main interest has, since I got a book called De Otroliga Tefaten, The Incredible Saucers, it's a Swedish book. I got it as a kid and I was, you know, I was mesmerized <laughs> with, with, what I, with what I read in it and what I saw in it. Uh, also a quite skeptical book, to be honest, but it, it, it kind of made me very, very intrigued and made me realize, realize that this is such a huge, amazing mystery to dive into. And it never ends. You know, you can, you know it's, it's possible to, to read and research. You know, it never stops. It never stops. Right, of course. It's it's interesting that you talk about being more skeptical when you were younger. Do you remember there being a point when your skepticism started to wane, I guess? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't remember the exact moment, but when you sit with so many people and you talk with them for an hour or two, you know, straight into the camera, uh, you kind of start to to see and hear something else. I'm not saying I'm, you know, I, I gotten more, you know, naive or, or or less critical, but you 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 realize that humans, that people, have experiences that means a lot to them, that affects them profoundly in in many ways. Um, and it's it kind of just kind of just grew on me that there is more to this. I'm not saying I was like a debunker mm. or skeptic, skeptic, you know, like hardcore before that. But I, I mean, I still I don't believe everything I hear. Uh, but there was something with the, the the human, the human part of the stories the, that kind of touched my my heart. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it was mainly during that show, that first show, paranormal show I worked with. Uh, I also had the chance to work with psychic mediums a lot. Some of them, you know, some of them I absolutely don't trust until this day. But some of them, you know, there, there was something with them and they were so good at what they were doing that I started to question myself and started to to listen better to what they had what they had to say and what they what information they could see or sense. Uh, and that uh, yeah that you know it meant a lot to me. You know, it's it kind of made me a bit happier and and more hopeful kind of <laughs> about the world and existence and life universe whatever you know hmm and was there an an account you remember from um that time uh, working on the that tv show that, that stands out oh yeah there's several first of all i can i would say it's mainly two two uh, two things that uh, affected me one was it was a family who had, they have filmed in their apartment where, when, you know, um, uh, cabinet doors and such, such were uh, open and closed quite violently, uh, lamps were moving around. And I felt when I saw the video that, you know, the, 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 this is a hoax. They're hoaxing us. It's, good, it's so well done, but they, they, I mean, they must have faked this. It's it's too good, you know. It's too too realistic, if you can call it realistic. So I felt that okay, uh, when I meet them and I interview them, I'm going to spend three days with them. You know, something must pop up. Something must. I mean, I, I must sense something because I, I count myself as a pretty good um, reader of of people. Uh, but that never happened. You know, I had a, a, a long talk uh, with the guy who filmed this and he was, you know, he was visibly scared and upset when he talked about it. And I could, I could sense, you know, he's not, he's not faking this. He's not, uh, he's not uh, pulling my leg. Um, 
And I was kind of, you know, oh, okay, they will, you know, when the, when the show is on the air, they will go out and say it was a hoax. They, they made fool of us, but they never did either, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's like, I'm still waiting for it, but I'm, this video, this video he shot was so convincing. And maybe a year or so after this, I was at the location, a small cabin in the forest, or it wasn't beside the road, but, you know, lots of nature around. And the family had seen shadow people in the garden. And the garden had these thin trees, uh, thin pine trees, you know, they're not thick at all. And we were standing outside, just casually talking. And... Uh, at the same time we were talking about these shadow people that they've seen in the garden, I see one of these shadow people, uh, a black solid uh, figure, you know, peeking out at me from behind one of these thin uh, trees. And it was solid, you could see heads and shoulders and, you know, almost the whole body. And I was like, yeah, this is, <laughs> finally I see what they, usually see you know it was a defining uh the the yeah defining moment for me that there, there there is something there is something out there i have absolutely no idea what it was but there was something there for sure wow yeah that that sounds like quite an experience in sweden how does an interest in the paranormal fit in with the rest of swedish culture yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, Sweden is, for some reason, known to be a very secular country. It's very rational. It's very straightforward. But there is, uh, I, I'd say, the pretty huge, you know, big belief or, or widespread belief in in ghosts and spirits. Um, most people I talk with, even even those who don't believe in ghosts. Uh, tell me stories what they've experienced at home uh, which you you could identify it as a a, a paranormal experience a ghost or something like that Um, and uh, and that is something I'd say that people in general they don't have so much problem talking about it Uh, it's something that exists everywhere basically in villas and houses and apartments and forests you know uh, but outside of these private conversations it's a more harsh uh, attitude to it you know you, you shouldn't believe such things and it's even worse you know when it comes to ufos and uh, other kind of weird things you know or even folklore uh, nature spirits etc there's tons of stories about gnomes and, and, and elves and trolls here in Sweden, but you, you, you rarely hear people talk about it. You, you need to ask them, you need to sit down, and these stories come comes flowing sooner or later. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, you know, it's a bit up and down, you know, but I think it's getting more, it's getting, it's getting more open-minded, absolutely. Hmm. And so when you were planning your book, when you were coming up with a, like an idea for it, did you think that you would find something sort of quintessentially Swedish in, in the encounters that you researched and wrote about? Well, I that was something actually I, I realized while writing the book. Because first I, I wanted to write about stuff that's not so known outside Sweden because I, I realized that there's not so much in, in English uh, uh, about these uh, incidents and no, it, it's not so much in Swedish either to be honest you know uh, we have Klaus Swan who's written several books on the subject which is a, a gr- great author and journalist and researcher uh, but I felt, okay, we, we need something, or I, I need something at this. I need to share these stories uh, to an international audience. And while writing the book, because I, I wrote them, I wrote it quite, you know, more like case files from the beginning. And I started to see 
quite clearly that there were certain things that appeared over and over again. And I think these are actually quite common all over the world. For example, uh, the Swedish nature seems to be very, very important for the experience itself. Um, you know, we have tons of forests and lakes and, you know, dirt roads uh, along, uh, around this country. And I'd say like poof, 95% of the cases that I just picked because I found them interesting are, are set in these locations. The, 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 the silence, the nature, and sometimes also connected to, you know, older folklore um, of, of different kinds. Uh, so maybe not a not super unique for Sweden, but I, I'd say that uh, the nature and silence that we we have in abundance here is is something that you know plays a big part in in what I've researched. Mm, definitely, and so that's that's the thing, isn't it? Um, the locations where where these things are are reported, and for for people who aren't familiar with Sweden. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about sort of the, the geography and uh, and what that is like? Yeah, uh, Sweden has, you know, it's, I don't know how big it is, but it's, it has a population of 10 million people. And the south of Sweden is very, very flat. But the further up you go, you, of course, the more forest you, you, you encounter and hills and mountains and, you know, it's, you have these vast areas of wilderness. So the further up you, you, you come in Sweden. So you can, it's very, very easy to just go out on the roads and travel and you won't see people for hours. Uh, as usual in many other countries, the, the people are, you know, they're in the cities or in smaller cities around bigger cities. Uh, so we have, there's, I mean, I'm not kidding you. It's so much forest. I, I, I'm in awe even when I go with the commuter train here from where I live to Stockholm, which is, takes 40 minutes or something like that. And there's trees and forests everywhere. Uh, and it goes on for, you know, you know, you, you can't see the end of it. <laughs> and I, I think that that's, a, you know, that's a, like I said, it's a, it's a big part in how folklore and these experiences are, are told and shared and, and experienced uh, here in Sweden. Um, I, I don't know what to say more about Sweden like that, but it's, it's a, it, it is a beautiful, magical country if you want to be, you know, find peace, kind of. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So... Moving on to the book itself, um, mm. early on in it, it there's, there's a chapter about underground humanoids. And I know earlier on you were talking about Swedish folklore and things like that. And this definitely seems like a chapter where there's a connection between folklore and some of the experiences that you write about in that chapter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um I mean, the, in, in, in the chapter, the chapter tells about, uh, mostly about uh, a guy called Benny. And he was, he was a tween at the time. He was very young when he, is, he, he and his friends were playing near an abandoned mine and some facilities. And they saw, they saw a two or maybe, maybe it was three now, I don't remember, quite big characters, big figures in, in white clothes and big eyes and suitcases, oddly enough, kind of, you know, they showed up at, uh, at one of the mine holes and uh, felt very threatening to the boys. Uh, and the boys started to run and these figures kind of chased them or ran beside the, the trail, kind of floating a little bit uh, above the ground. Um, this this place, Smedibakken, it's... it's um, also surrounded by by forest and it's a it's an old mining community it's it's not active nowadays uh, and it seems like a lot of these stories or there is a lot of stories surrounding mine areas and cave areas with caves um, we, we have i mean we of course we have 
stories about dragons and such since since very long. Uh, but also the mine mine wife, which is a woman who who uh, traveled the mines, you know, looking after them, and you you should never, you know, provoke her, or there could be an accident. And of course, you have trolls, which lives inside the mountains and underground. Uh, and there's, I mean, the the idea of, of of mines and caves has always been magical to me because it's um, it's um, it's it, they're scary, but they're also very intriguing. I mean, I've, I've I've been in a few caves, not many, and I've been in a few mines, and I find it I find it honestly quite terrifying because you kind of you surround surrounded by the planet itself, by by soil and dirt and stone and you also know that if you get trapped down there, you probably never will get out. So th- there is a fear in it, but it's also a curiosity, uh, I say. And I also feel that that by going underground, it's also a deep dive in your own psyche, in your own uh, consciousness. Uh, uh, what's what's down there in the dark? What 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 fears? do you feel when you think about it what what uh, curiosity you feel i mean there's always stories about treasures and a huge amount of gold down there you know owned by the trolls for example uh, so that's i mean that's super important especially i mean you find these stories of course mostly around uh, mining communities uh, uh, lots of ghost stories and if you want to read more about trolls you have to go a bit further back of course uh, because trolls themselves aren't so um, I don't know the word I mean they're not so popular anymore people talk rather talk about uh, ghosts and, and and other other creatures um, so but what what I find mostly interesting with this chapter, from from my point of view, is that this was the first big experience for Benny, and he was very young, and it kind of set off a, a lifetime of experiences. It's, it's it's a it's in in the I mean the incident itself is quite absurd, and you yeah you can be skeptical about it, but obviously it meant a lot to him. It kind of opened up to for him to another realm of of, of, of things to see and hear and think about, uh, and he's still. Uh, I mean, I talked with him uh, while writing this book, and for him, this this was a big event, but it was almost like the experiences he had after that made a bigger splash for him. Uh, so it's. Uh, I mean, he saw. He, he's you've seen so many golden discs, for example, uh, uh, hovering about uh, above lakes and forests, and uh, I, I find that so fascinating. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I envy him in one way because I, I've never had an experience like that. But I, I would love some time to you know find the key to 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 see and uh, you know see these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something in that chapter you you write, which I, I found interesting, is that trolls aren't always these large, often grotesque creatures. They come in many forms. That wasn't something I was aware of. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I mean, the the, the troll as a big grotesque monster is a quite modern thing. Um, we had an amazing artist uh, named John Bauer. I, I don't remember the year he died. Maybe it was 1918 or something. So it was a long time ago, maybe a little bit later. And he started to write, uh, he started to draw trolls uh, as these b- big fellas with, with big noses and hairy shoulders and, you know, gold uh, around their necks. Uh, but before that, trolls could take the shape of owls or cats or very, very beautiful people, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, beautiful, you know, 
<laughs> people you would you know fall in love with basically if you met them. Uh, so it's interesting, at least in Sweden, how the perception of trolls have changed over the years. Uh, personally, I feel that what, what I mean, the stories about larger trolls before Jon Bauer probably was more about giants because there was a lot of stories about giants in, in Sweden. And I mean, I heard them, a lot of them as a child. Uh, and they uh, they kind of remind me of trolls. They're large, they're clumsy, they're they're sometimes rude, but still kind of friendly, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it just it makes me think of the movie Troll Hunter. Um, yeah. And yeah, I kind of feel sympathetic for the trolls in that film, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love Troll Hunter, I, and I. To be honest, I'm, my knowledge about Norwegian troll culture is is not as good as the one <laughs> I have about Sweden. So maybe uh, Norway have more stories about these big grotesque trolls. But I suspect, and th- that these are more uh, modern invention. And and when I mean modern, maybe you know the last during the last hundred years or one hundred fifty years or so. Uh, but Troll Hunter is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> um, talking about the that artist and how the depiction of trolls changed based on the way he depicted them, did you find at all in the research you did that the things people encountered shifted with changes in culture at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um... I, I've, once again, I think this is pretty common all over the world. But uh, one good example is is Helge Eriksson, which I mentioned in the book. He, in 1931, I think it was 1931. Yeah, he he encountered a, a, a gnome army, uh, an army of yeah gnomes or army. It was like a dozen of them walking past him and with the grumpy faces and beards and uh, pointy hats and they they walked past him and into a bright light that flew away so i mean with today's eyes you could see it as aliens or a ufo you know they're going into so the first time he told this story in 1973 to a researcher uh, it was known so he didn't know what it was if you look you know further a couple of years and look at later interviews he he have changed his perception of them then it's aliens and it's a flying saucer so it's a more modern example how perception changed probably in this case because uh, the investigators at the time had a very strong bias towards uh, aliens and flying saucers and not folklore necessary so they probably just uh, you know, uh, affected him by, by this. Uh, then you have, which I don't mention that much in the book, but you have the the, the ghost flyers and ghost rockets, uh, two big Swedish uh, flaps of <clears throat> unknown flying objects, uh, where they first in '36 saw them as ghostly airplanes. And later in '46, as rockets and missiles, uh, and of course that also changed, you know, with uh, with with Roswell and Kenneth Arnold and all that, and, and popular culture, and people started to see classic UFOs most of the, of the times, at least. Hmm. Um. The subheader of your book is, is High Strangeness in Sweden, and I definitely think that uh, the chapter titled Boxes. I really, really, cla- really classes as as high strangeness. I I, I love that chapter. <laughs> yeah, but boxes is is uh, it might I have a few favorite cases. Many of these cases I love them, but uh, the the boxes chapter uh, is is like it's one of the cases I felt that okay I need to re- I need to write about this. I need to share this. Um, it's a uh, it's such a fascinating event that kind of in its absurdity still feels realistic. I mean, I, I believe the guy. Uh, I mean, Shell Naslund was 
he was working at the transmitter station in 1969, uh, where, you know, it's evening, 6 p.m. or something like that. He's hanging around the, the transmitter station and where he, he suddenly, there's some things happening before that, but he feels he needs to go outside and look. And he sees this huge UFO, 150 meters in diameter. And from this, this uh, UFO comes what can be explained as, or described as boxes, kind of etheric boxes or fluffy boxes, some kind of force fields maybe <laughs> and he he got this thought that he, he he must let them inside which he did also so they kind of floated inside his workplace and inspected the equipment for like 10 minutes or so uh, until they left again and i mean it's um it's, it's a strange story and it's convincing because he during this time, not not with this uh, this uh, creatures, but before that, he called his colleagues because he wanted to report that there were some issues with the equipment. And directly afterwards, he called the colleagues, he called his wife, he called the local police. Uh, so it's 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 surrounded by other witnesses who didn't see anything, but they could witness that Shell, you know, he, he obviously was very sincere. He hadn't, he hadn't, he, he wasn't drunk or he, he wasn't the kind of guy who made things up. Uh, uh, so I, I've, I've always carried that case with me because it's so, uh, yeah, I've, I've used this word several times now, I realize, but I find it magical. It's, it's something that I, really can't find uh, an explanation for yeah you you could you could discuss it you could say maybe he fell asleep in there or something but you know he it's these phone calls before and after which makes me very skeptical about the dream theory yeah and the the nature of where it happens as well seems important yeah the nature of his job Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it, it kind of, um, I mean, he was a guy with a, with a lot of responsibility. And I, I also feel that why, why should he make this up? Why should he prank about such a thing? Uh, a thing that could directly or indirectly affect so many people's around because he was responsible for this, transmissions to go out all over Sweden. We're talking radio transmissions and television uh, transmissions. Uh, I mean, the, he was, of course, very worried that that the connection had been broken. So that's why he called his colleagues, you know, because he noticed things on the equipment. But that, you know, it didn't happen anything like that. <clears throat> so he, he feels like, uh, he felt like a guy you, you could trust. And he stood by his story for the rest of his life. He, he never backed down, you know. Wow, yeah. And there's nothing else going on at that time in Sweden that that might be a reason that you'd want to highlight this person or the job that he did, or there's, there's nothing in going on in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we. <laughs> I mean, Sweden is, you know, was still is near Russia or old Soviet Union or, or the Eastern Bloc. We had the Cold War. There was a lot of, uh, lot of, of focus on on uh, the borders, on on you know possible intruders. Um, so yeah, there, I mean, there is this. I mean, he, he was working at a place that had its eyes on it, you know, from, from both the Swedish government and, and maybe others. Uh, but it's all, it also feels like if it was, if it was, you know, a foreign power doing something, it's quite an odd thing to, <laughs> to do, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I've, what can I say? I, I trust the guy. I've, I've read everything I've been able to find about him. He's, he's passed away by now. Uh, uh, and also the original reports from the time. And, and, and 
you know, it's it, it, it's a good case. It would have been wonderful if anyone else saw something. He actually called the police directly afterwards. The police the, the was a friend of his and lived, you know, you can say on the other side of the valley. So he could look up at the mountain where this, these things were happening. But the police didn't see anything. I mean, the UFO had already flown off. But no one else saw something. Uh, and that's that's that must be very frustrating when you had an experience like that. Uh, I, I met a man very recently who had a, uh, he, he saw a huge UFO over his house, a gigantic, you know, he, he it's hard to to say how big it was, but, it, it, you know, it was, you know, it was, you couldn't miss it. But he was the only one who saw it. His wife saw, um, you know, a, a few seconds of it when it was far away, but he, he was the only one who saw it. And this was in 2011, and he still thinks about it every day, and it touches him so much. And he's so frustrated that no one else have spoken out about this. He kind of feels like, is this only in my head? But then his wife saw something. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I can't really imagine how it is to have an experience like this, something so big and powerful, and you don't have any true backup. You don't have any other witnesses. You don't have any evidence in the shape of video or photos or, or stuff like that. No, I completely agree. It, it, it must be so frustrating to have an experience like that and not be able to fully get over to other people what it was like and for them especially for someone not to maybe see it with you because then at least you know that someone else has seen it as well and it's it's not all just your own word that needs to be taken yeah 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 absolutely i mean i've encountered it so many times with uh, witnesses who, who have been alone when they experience something and the frustration behind it because and but that also, I mean, that may be also, you know, it's, it kind of feels 50-50. Some people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to share it just because they were alone. But then we have, like, the man I met recently, Orshell, in 1969, who had this experience and they wanted to share it. Maybe because, you know, they want to see if someone else is out there. They need to talk about it. They need to get it out of their system, so to speak. Um yeah yeah hmm later on in the book there's a chapter called uh, night of the ufos which is about a big uh, ufo flap in sweden uh do you want to just talk a little bit about that that was another chapter i really enjoyed yeah uh, night of the ufos yeah the chapter that was actually the first chapter I wrote, and it's it's set in a place called Valentuna, and it's a couple of Swedish miles from here, like 3.5, 35 kilometers or something like that. Uh, and it, this happened in 1974. It was it's probably one of the most known UFO flaps in Sweden. There's been others, absolutely, but this one have such a special dramatic story and it mainly revolves around a, a, a lady named Hillevi and Hillevi it was a late evening and she was trying to call her parents she was 36 at the moment and was at home with her children and she couldn't reach her parents the the connection was down and there were some issues in, in general with with both television and, and phones so she grabbed the kids, she was worried, and uh, took the car. And on her way to her parents, she saw this bright light in, up in the sky following the car. And she didn't really, she really didn't think that much about it. Could have been a helicopter or an airplane or even a star or a planet, something like that. But it seemed to follow her. And this is, of course, a, a common, you know, misidentification. Yeah. So it could be anything like that. But she noticed it. So she arrived to her parents, who, who lives uh, far out in nowhere, to their little house, her, her, um, her the old family house. And her parents, her father comes out and he says that their, their phones are down, the TV doesn't work. And they stand there talking and they see this 
big light not far away from the house. It's like, uh, imagine a, a bus, basically, in size. And they look out at an old quarry in, inside the forest and is there hovering. They can kind of sense what looks like windows on the side. And what's even more odd is that they're coming up beams, beams of light from the ground into the ship. Like it's, you know, sucking up something or, you know. And the whole family is there, her mother, her father, her children and her and, you know, the children, they start to scream and cry and everyone gets very, very terrified by this huge object. So <clears throat> they get in the car and they drive, uh, I don't know what this is, 10 minutes to her brother. And the, the object seems to be gone. But when they arrive to her, her brother's house, he meets them outside and he asks them, what's this bright thing following you? <laughs> And they look back and they see that this object has followed them to his house. Now, Hilary is both scared and very curious. So she kind of feels that, you know, she wants to investigate this further. And she takes the car with her children and her brother is behind them in his car. And these objects come flying and kind of hovers above her car. And they could, they have this bright, strong light inside of the car. One of her children, uh, the daughter, claimed later that she got a message that she had to leave the car, you know, and go to this object. Uh, of course, Hilary didn't allow this. The object then flew away and it hovered uh, above a barn nearby and then it disappeared. That's a short story. The thing is that during this night, there were like 30, 40 witnesses who saw the same thing. Uh, and at the end, I mean, the next day, the following days, they got over, the police got over 90 reports from people experiencing, experiencing this, uh, this particular night including a possible abduction because uh, actually this was the uh, evening before uh, a, a man named Justa Hager was out walking and he saw this bright light coming towards him kind of threw him to the ground and he wakes up like an hour later standing outside his home knocking on the door trying to wake up his wife uh, which is by itself is a mystery, of course. But later during hypnosis, which of course you can't be very skeptical about, but during hypnosis, he tells this bizarre story that he he was in he was in some kind of space. He didn't say flying saucer or UFO, but he was in some kind of space together with with aliens or beings at least who looked kind of they had they reminded reminded him of native americans uh, but his his wounds after this meeting he was thrown to the ground he was uh, you know the, the 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 things that happened when he was gone uh, all of this were you know captured by uh, doctors afterwards uh, and you can see that he had a, there was a rough time there uh, when he disappeared. And I mean, this whole area, if you look back and look at uh, all the research and witness reports, uh, and even the military came there, spent a week just trying to see what it was, trying to find it. They did a lot of interviews and there were tons and tons of of witnesses from both this night and the following nights and uh, years before this about uh, big uh, bright crafts hovering in the area uh, sometimes cigar shaped sometimes more like spheres uh, and it's it's a it's a fascinating story just because there's so many witnesses and there's so much documentation also the the military uh, pretended to have some kind of uh, what he called in English exercise, a military exercise in the area, but they were actually really looking for the flying saucer. the The case never he's never gotten uh, an explanation. There's is still a mystery uh, to this day. Uh, I know Hilary, the the lady who experienced the 
the maybe the more spectacular parts of this story she still tells the exact same story there's hasn't been nothing has changed since 1974 uh, uh, which is for me very impressive because i talk to witnesses sometimes it's obviously that they're adding stuff or they you know retracting stuff Uh, it's not the same but for her this is exactly how she remember remember it Uh, and that's that makes me very impressed by the whole incident you know something happened there during that night yeah absolutely um what happened with uh, gusta jaeger made me think of the travis walton case as well because he got hit by a beam of light and and i mean he he was missing for a lot longer but it struck me as having a similarity oh yeah absolutely Please remind me, Travis Walton, was that in 75 it, or? Uh, yeah. yeah, yes. I think it was like November 75. Yeah, so it, it, it was afterwards. This is, I mean, the, I mean, as we know, there's been stories about abductions before this, but it feels still like, uh, uh, you know, an earlier version of, of Walton and, and, and other abduction uh, events uh, afterwards. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I mean, then you can discuss, of course, okay, can you trust hypnosis? Uh, I, I, I've read the, the, um, the transcriptions uh, of the uh, uh, hypnosis um, session, and it's kind of obvious, though, however, that uh, the, the, the people who did it kind of not planted the ideas about UFOs and aliens and such, but it, they had quite leading questions, absolutely. But I don't think that takes away the, the power of, you know, his experience or Hillevi's experience or, or, or all of the other witnesses. You know, that's just maybe a bit sloppy investigation, you know. There's so many other witnesses. Hmm. And you, you mentioned there that in, in this instance... The, the military did get involved is in general in Sweden is that something that there's been a history of with this sort of thing and in, in terms of government interest and the relationship between authorities and investigating these sorts of events well uh, there there've been incidents where the military has been involved but i say that the valentuna ufo flap is maybe the yeah one of the you know bigger operations when it comes to this of course once again you can go earlier in swedish history and the ghost rockets which had a, a lot of military involvements and even witnesses which is very reliable stuff um but I'd say that it wasn't until 1999 where an uh, alleged unknown object uh, crashed into a lake in, uh, in Värmland uh, in front of seven witnesses that there once again was uh, quite big military operations. Uh, first, they, they sent uh, some, uh, uh, some people from the Secret Service or the, the Swedish version of it and military to interrogate the witnesses. And then they spent, uh, I think it was two or three weeks just diving in this lake uh, under the disguise once again uh, from of a, a military exercise or even uh, one story that they spread that they were practicing in building bridges uh, <laughs> over the lake. Uh, so that was a big one. And those papers, that operation was uh, top secret for, for several years. Not anymore, though. And according to those papers, they didn't find anything. Uh However, there's rumors that people saw the military actually taking something away from the lake, but it could probably be the, the equipment they used to search the lake. Uh, but in general, I, I'd say that the military, the Swedish military is a bit skeptical about it. At least, you know, if you look, uh, if you, if you look at it from the outside, I don't know if they're hiding something or is stuff that they don't tell us. Uh, but I say that Valentuna and this lake incident in 99 are, are the few, and the ghost rockets are the few 
cases where the military actually showed some really, you know, big interest in it. Right. Okay. Later on in the book, you have a chapter called like the wings of a dragonfly. And again, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well done for finding something that's <laughs> definitely high strangeness here, Fred. <laughs> that's for sure a high strangeness. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of, <laughs> I say it every time I say it's one of my favorite cases, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's such a great case because even the witnesses, Jürgen and Ulrika, have absolutely no idea what they saw. And I've been talking with them several times and they still keep in contact and they still like, they, 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 they don't know. They can't say it was alien or it's something paranormal, but they actually hit something with their car that night in, uh, in 84. Um, what happened was what they were driving home from one of their parents after an evening of, I guess, good food and socializing. And they're out on a pretty dark road. There's forest on both sides. And suddenly in the light of the, in the, in the headlight, they see in front of the car, they see a, a, a big ball, you can say, or, or a sphere. It's kind of grayish. And the, the, it doesn't really emanate any light. It's, it's, it's bright, but it's not like it's, you know, sh- sh- there's no shining around it. It doesn't, you know, uh, show the forest or the the road underneath. It's just bright, uh, kind of like like they describe it. Like the the light is sucked into it, and attached to this ball, there's a a, a long uh, stem. You can say it's a, you know going right up, and at the end of that, it's two big wings, kind of like a dragonfly wings on on opposite sides, and it's kind of just hovering there above the road and they're they're driving towards it and they both see it from slightly different angles and they they it's such a bizarre sight for them that they just drive and they hit this ball this sphere uh, uh, with the car and it kind of jumps over them and disappears behind them and they just continue to drive uh, they looked at each other basically and then they didn't talk about it until the day after more or less uh this is a case that i mean i don't know how to define it of course it's an unknown flying object of of some kind but i mean what is it is it is it uh it could even be a crypto you know cryptid cryptid of sorts you know some kind of giant insect or or alien being or some kind of drone i mean and then i'm talking alien drone of course uh, because nothing like this has ever been seen in sweden before or after this uh, and and like with other witnesses i brought up they tell the same story this is this is what they saw they don't want to add any details and they, they don't want to you know build it to something larger or or more spectacular this 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 is what happened and it's, it's. Uh, I'd love to go to this this uh, this road sometime in the forest because I'm so curious how it looks around it. It's a long time ago, but you know, you want to go to the location and look at it to really see, how, you know, what might have been going on at the time. Uh, I seriously doubt we will ever get a, an answer uh, what this really was, but I. It's a lovely little incident, you know, and, and Jürgen and Rika is such a lovely, awesome couple. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy they agreed to be interviewed for this book. Mm. Well, one thing uh, you, you do seem to notice from, from reading your book is that a, a lot of the time these, these very odd things are almost wanting to be seen. I mean, I mean that craft that thing with the insect wings i mean it could have flown anywhere but it's on a road <laughs> like it's it's if it's i mean okay it's a it's a relatively lonely road but still it's it's somewhere where if it is going to be seen that's where it will be seen so you know it's it's, it's interesting that there's it feels like there's that aspect of it as well that perhaps it wants to be witnessed yeah yeah you know i i've I tend, to, I tend to see the phenomenon, uh, you know, I'm, of course, I'm not alone in this as a 
as a trickster by itself. It's a mischievous, uh, uh, mischievous little bastard, you know. Uh, like you said, it, it wants to be seen, but it also wants to be as ridiculous as possible. So, you know, it seems unreal, you know, because what what should they tell people? You know, we, we hit a, a, a bright sphere with the dragonfly wings on a road. That's absurd by itself. So, of course, people are skeptical. And and that makes the phenomenon itself, it, it makes it able to show itself without getting uh, caught, so to speak. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's a little bit... I don't know how to put it in words. Uh, yeah, it's a trickster. It's a, it's a cheeky thing, you know. It's it 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 wants to be seen, but it doesn't want to be revealed. Uh, I I jokingly call this, or I don't call it, but I jokingly talk about this as, um, let's say, let's look at old UFO films where people have filmed flying saucers in the 50s and 60s. And the, the flying saucers almost always looks like, it, it looks like a pretty cheap model hanging in a string and is wobbling back and forth. Uh, so maybe, I mean, look at it like this. Maybe you're out, to, you know, you have your movie camera, your Super 8 camera, you're out doing something, and you see this awesome, fantastic UFO. You see this strong phenomenon in front of you, and you start filming it. And when you watch the movie, it looks like a sheep model, a sheep miniature hanging in there. And that's a way for the phenomenon to be seen, but not, you know, reveal itself for what it is. Uh, it's like a cosmic joke somehow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just out of interest, are there any legends of genius inventors or mad scientists in the Swedish wilderness that, that might have explained what, what was seen? <laughs> but, but not, not really, not what, of course, I, 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 yesterday I, I was at the party and um, an old veteran investigator told me that in 1980 they had met a man who claimed to have photographed a gnome. Uh, and this photo is available. It looks like a little gnome, but I think it might be a little girl who just ended up in front of the camera. So they're, they're, they're in his home, and uh, uh, one investigator is uh, doing the interview with him, and the other one is kind of looking around, you know, you know, a little bit you know, curious, seeing what's in the house. And he opens a door, and this man, uh, this photographer of gnomes, has an alchemy laboratory in a room where he tries to <laughs> he tries to make gold from from metals and chemicals and stuff and that's like a that's such an awesome little detail that the guy who claimed to photograph a gnome uh, actually was an alchemist uh, in secret obviously uh, so that when when you mention that that's the first thing i i come to think of uh and I'm sure there's a lot more like that uh, hidden around this this uh, this country, uh, but I, I'd say that that's it, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Fred, there's plenty more in your book that we could talk about, but sadly we're almost out of time. No. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If people want to get hold of a copy of Northern Lights um, and find out more about your good self, how best mm -hmm. do they do that? The, I mean, the book is available online everywhere. You can buy it on Amazon or bookshop.org or, or other online stores. Uh, if you want to interact with me, which I love, I, I love new people. I love new stories and old stories. You can... Uh, you can uh, follow me and I follow back on Twitter, for example, Homo Satanis, or on Instagram, Homo Satanis here and there. Uh, you can all also find an official page on Facebook where I do some updates uh, about, about what I'm doing. So I, I'd say that's the, that's the best way to find the book and uh, hang out with me.
Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that info in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Fred. As I mentioned, we only discussed a small amount of what he has written about in the book, so Northern Lights will make a fine addition to your bookshelves if you enjoyed the episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on X and Mastodon and subscribe on most podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.